Uh, this morning we're going to continue, as I said, our, our sermon series, Psalms of Hope, and we're going to be in Psalm chapter 33. And so as you turn there in your Bibles, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we would love to gift you one of those. We have those at the info bar as well. Uh, that is a great use of, of your tithes and offerings here. Um, I want to give you the big picture takeaway for this morning for us, right up front, right at the top. Here it is. Because God is good, we worship him. That's basically Psalm 33 in a nutshell. Because God is so good, we worship him. This psalm is about two things. Number one, how good our God is. And number two, the response of praise that God's awesomeness elicits within his people. <clears throat> God's goodness encompasses really all of his other attributes. If you were asked to describe God in one word, you couldn't do better than the word good. Love is good, so God is all-loving. Holiness is good, and so God is perfectly holy. Both justice and mercy, righteousness and grace, if it's good, then it's God. Our God is good. But as good as our God is, as much as he deserves and desires our worship and praise and response, we struggle with that, don't we? The angels have no problem singing holy, holy, holy all day, every day, for all of eternity. Meanwhile, we get worried that we might get bored in heaven singing the same song all over again throughout eternity because we don't have the faintest glimpse of just how good our God is. Most of you are familiar with the Acts model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Let me ask you, which is the most difficult for you to spend sustained time and focus on? We don't have trouble with supplication, right? Asking God for stuff, prayer requests, we're good with that. Thanksgiving, pretty good. Confession, eh. But adoration, is anybody else here honest enough to admit that in my sin, I am so inwardly focused so much of my day, so self-centered, just navel-gazing, that it can be tough to spend any amount of time shifting my attention solely to the Lord. Is that just me? No. Okay, good. A few other sinners here. I know I'm chief of sinners, but it's good to know I'm not alone. Friends, that is exactly what Psalm 33 invites us to do this morning, to turn our attention to the Lord, to his goodness, and to worship him accordingly. That's my goal this morning, is to just focus your attention on God and how good he is, and to let it lead us to worship. So would you stand with me as you're able? We're going to read Psalm 33 aloud. I'll read it for us from the ESV. Words will be on the screen in front. As I said, if you don't have a Bible. <clears throat> but hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all 
His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters out of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We worship you for your good, upright word. Father, you are so worthy and deserving of praise. God, we, we do confess that all too often we just get sucked down into our, our tiny own little kingdoms, our, our, our little worlds of one, our navel-gazing. Father, we want a bigger vision this morning. We want a vision for you. Would you give us eyes to see you, to behold you as you are in your beauty and your splendor Think of the prayer elsewhere in the Psalms of David that one thing I ask, one thing I seek to behold you in, in your courts, your beauty, your splendor, to gaze upon you, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, that's our prayer this morning. Would you fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we behold him and his goodness, would you lead us into a deeper, deeper worship? For your glory we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> uh, so we're, we're not sure who authored Psalm 33. Many think it was King David. We're just going to call him the psalmist. He lists for us here 11 distinct attributes or facets of God's goodness. And then he's going to shift and suggest eight specific characteristics that ought to define our worship in response. We're going to focus most of our time, as the psalmist does, on the first part, the 11 distinct 
attributes of God's goodness. And you'll notice, accordingly, that I'm starting in verse 4. Most psalms of adoration begin by detailing who God is first and what God has done for us, and then they'll move on to praising Him because of it. But here in Psalm 33, it's almost as if the poet just can't help himself. He cannot contain his praises before he can even begin describing how good God is. He's already broken out into song. That's an appropriate response, right? But I want to start in verse 4, and then we'll back up. I want to start with who God is, because as James Johnston notes in his commentary, it's hard to get excited about nothing. The joy and energy of verses 1 through 3 here are rooted in the truth and the theology of verses 4 through 19. Great worship Johnston says, grows out of great doctrine. It is because of who God is that we praise Him. And so let's examine who God is. Specifically, 11 qualities. Number one, the Lord is righteous. Verse four, His word is upright. In other words, His way is right. It's not just because God happens to know what is right and makes His determinations accordingly. No, God determines what is right by His words and actions. God is capital R, righteous. There is not some external standard of rightness and wrongness that God tries to accommodate to. God is Himself the standard. The, The morality, the rightness or wrongness of things finds its source in the very nature and being of God. Things are right or wrong because He says so. His Word makes it so. I was a rebellious kid growing up. I always took issue with the because I said so reason. And in my defense, parents, that's a pretty lame reason. You are all fallible sinners. You know what's a good reason to do something? Because God says so. That's a good reason. That's, That's the kind of authority I want to appeal to in my parenting. Point them to God's Word. Now, that said, kids, we have kids here this morning. Obey your parents, right? Even if their best reason is because I said so. You know why you obey them? Because God said so. Ephesians 6.1, obey your parents, all right? So listen to them. But can you imagine just for a moment with me what it must be like to be God and be right all the time? Some of us, that's our idol, right? Given the choice, like, uh, God, you you can have one wish. I'll be right all the time. Allie's got a coffee mug in the office downstairs here that says, I'd agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. Eh, sorry, Allie. My dad had a saying growing up, son, there are two ways of doing things in life, my way and the wrong way. Eh, sorry, dad. No, there are two ways of doing things in life, God's way and the wrong way, right? He is the absolute standard. And so as Abraham Lincoln said, let us not ask God to be on our side. Let us pray to be on God's side because God is always right. Number two, God is faithful. He's faithful. Verse four, all his work is done in faithfulness. Again, what must it be like to never break a promise? And listen, it's not because God doesn't make them. One of the most popular adjectives that the Old Testament uses to describe God is he's a covenant-keeping God. He makes promises. Anyone know how many in Scripture? How many promises? Anyone want to guess? Throw out a guess. 7,487 promises in 
Scripture that God makes to us. But that's not the amazing part. right? I can make you 7,487 promises. That's not the problem. The amazing part is God keeps every single one of them. And in the New Testament, we discover something even more amazing than that, that not only does God keep every promise He's ever made, but He has already fulfilled every promise to us in the person and the work of His Son, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. And speaking of God's goodness, leading us to worship, Paul then concludes in the second half of the verse, that is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we, in response, utter our amen to God for his glory. God's goodness, his faithfulness, ought to necessarily lead his people, all the redeemed, washed in his blood, whom God has faithfully rescued from the curse of sin, the grip of death, the threat of hell. It leads us to worship, to adoration, to utter amens to God for his glory and his goodness and his faithfulness in Christ number three God is just verse five says he loves righteousness and justice in the Bible God's righteousness tzedakah and his justice mishpat they go hand in hand because God always does what is right he is also necessarily always fair Psalm 89.14 declares, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Deuteronomy 32.4, God's work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. And we want God to be just, don't we? We all have this inherent longing for justice. The first birth mom that Polly and I were matched with before Elijah's mom she backed out on us on the adoption immediately after she gave birth, before she even saw the baby. The agency told us she knew she was never going to give this baby up all along. Some moms just do this. They work the system. So we put her up in a nice hotel for the last five months of her pregnancy, all her meals, all her doctor's visits on our dime. Polly and I are just out, $30,000, no baby, no recourse. Uh, your tax dollars pay for the delivery. They are still paying for her welfare, for child support. The agency put her on the adoption fraud list. They said, statistically speaking, uh, she'll get knocked up again. She'll just change her name and do the whole thing all over again. This is what happens. She had already had CPS called on her during her pregnancy for abusing her oldest child. We want people like this to get punished, don't we? We, we, we want them to be brought to justice. This is wrong. Colossians 3.25 assures us that everyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And we cheer, yeah justice until we realize that means justice for us too right until we realize wait a minute we've all got to appear before the judgment seat answer for every deed 
done in the body? And friends, the only way that God's justice is a good thing for you and for me, for sinners like us, is if God has somehow made a way to execute His justice without damning us to the eternal punishment that we so rightfully deserve. And if we read on, right there in chapter 5, of 2 Corinthians, we discover this glorious gospel truth that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin even though He knew no sin. He was perfectly sinless so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, if you have trusted in Him and Him alone for your salvation, when God now looks at you, He no longer sees you as the sinner that you are. He now sees you as covered in the blood and the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. That's the gospel, friends. No amens. No one here is saved. No? Amen. Thank you. That God can still be perfectly just without punishing you and me for our sins. A punishment that we could not bear because God has provided for Himself the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb, behold, who takes away the sins of the world. On Him, God has laid the iniquities of us all. And in Him, we actually become the righteousness of God. Every imperfect person in this world, I don't care how good you think you are relatively by our pathetic human standards, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, throw out your examples. When you stand before the judgment seat of the perfectly good, perfectly righteous, perfectly just God of the universe, and he presses rewind on the video, the story of your life, and then he pushes play at the beginning, and he sits there beside you, and watches every gory detail, every word, every thought, every deed. And by the end of it, you're in a pile on the floor. And God asks you, so now, why should I let you into heaven? There is only one answer that will suffice on that day because, friends, there is only one who has met God's perfect standard of righteousness and has satisfied God's absolute justice. His name is Jesus He is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to be reconciled to God the Father. On that day, you better be ready to plead the blood of Jesus. Number four, God is loving. Why did Jesus do it? Why did he do it? For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only son. The breath in your lungs right now is God's love for you. Verse 5 says, The earth is full, full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The cup of coffee you enjoyed this morning is God's love for you. The excited smile on your daughter's face when she woke you up too early this morning is God's love 
for you. The relaxing warmth of your morning shower, the invigorating coolness of this beautiful pre-fall weather we're experiencing, the sheer joy of gathering in God's house with God's people to sing God's praises. It is all God's love for you. The earth is full of it. It's everywhere, the psalmist says. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift down here on earth comes from your heavenly Father up above. And the best and most perfect of all those gifts, the fullest manifestation of God's love for us, 1 John 4.9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love that God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice for us. Oh, how he loves us. Number five, God is creator. Verses six and seven say, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And how often do we take creation for granted? We take our mere existence, the existence of everything, anything for that matter, as a given. Listen, God didn't have to make anything. You know that, right? Like before creation, God was perfectly content, just the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just, just chilling, enjoying perfectly, uh, perfect loving fellowship with one another for all eternity, stretching back into pre-time and space. God didn't create out of a sense of lack, out of need, because God was missing something? No. He did it simply because He's good. And creating good things, Genesis 1, is good. And so we don't take it for granted, brothers and sisters. We ought to praise God for His goodness in creation. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created romans 125 the creator is blessed forever romans 11 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever amen number six god is awesome verse eight let the all the earth Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. The dictionary defines awe as an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, fear, etc., produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful, etc. Now, you don't often find etceteras in the dictionary. They try to be pretty precise with their wording and language, obviously. But the word awe apparently merits not one, but two etceteras, because it is by definition trying to point us to something that is beyond words. You, you could just keep listing all the emotions elicited, right? Reverence, admiration, adoration, wonder, amazement, stupefaction. You could just keep listing all the descriptors for the awesome thing that elicits that kind of a response from us. Grand, sublime, powerful, wonderful, majestic, great, good. But part of what it means to say that God is awesome is to recognize that at a certain point all your words fall short. You could never exhaust the list. 
You could go through the whole dictionary. But God still transcends words. And so sometimes the best response is simply silent awe. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with awe that you were struck dumb? Like that you just totally speechless. Y'all know that I am not one to come up short on words. Why are you laughing? But the first time I saw my daughter in that delivery room, right, there are some moments in life where words just don't suffice, right? Transcends language. Friends, that is every moment in the presence of our God. And yet, Jesus said, if we are silent, even the rocks are going to cry out because God will be praised. And so the psalmist says, don't be quiet. Shout for praise because number seven, God is almighty. He's almighty. Verse nine, he spoke and it came to be. That's Genesis 1 again. We, we, we do our daily devotions as a family. Right now we're reading uh, Indescribable, devotions about God and science for kids. It's a really neat one, parents. Highly recommend it. I learned this week uh, that when God asked Job, in Job chapter 38, can you tie up the stars of the Pleiades? Can you loosen the ropes of the stars in Orion? Can you bring out the stars at the right times? That the Pleiades is a star cluster so big and so bright, they can be seen from just about anywhere on earth without a telescope, yet they are more than 443 light years away. That's 2,604 trillion miles. And our God holds the Pleiades in the palm of his hand. In fact, the Bible tells us he can measure the whole universe with just his hand. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Now, we don't really have a great idea of just how big our universe is because we're so tiny and puny that we see so very little of it. But astronomers' best current guesstimate is somewhere in the ballpark of 93 billion light years in diameter. As a reminder, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. It's roughly 6 trillion miles. So 6 trillion miles times 93 billion light years. I'll let you do the math. So at a certain point in time, when you're the psalmist, right, or you're, you're Job, or you're Isaiah, and you're trying to convey just how big and, and powerful this kind of a God is, words fail you and you resort to these kinds of metaphorical anthropomorphisms. God is so mighty, he holds the entire universe in his hand. That's just to say he's almighty. <laughs> he's all-powerful, omnipotent. And he's also, number eight, sovereign. He is sovereign. Verses 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You and I get frustrated when our plans fall through, don't we? Anybody have to cancel a vacation this summer because of COVID? Anybody cancel a wedding, an anniversary, right? Miss spring term of your senior year, one last big hurrah with all your, your buddies. That wasn't your plan, was it? But it was God's plan. It was God's plan. To say that God is sovereign 
is to say that he is in total control of everything that happens in this life. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when you or I have a problem with something that's going on down here, we know who to take it up with, right? And we can. That's the amazing thing. God actually invites that. That was week one of this sermon series, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, our hope and lament. God invites us to be honest about our grievances and bring them to him, but we also need to keep in mind how he responded to Job when Job brought his list of complaints before God. You remember? God said, I'm sorry, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you put me in the wrong? Paul asks similarly, who are you, O man, you mortal to answer back to God, will that which is molded say to its molder, what are you doing, God? We're just pots. Who are we to question God? Friends, we see so little of God's plan in this life. And so our best prayer really is, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we can pray that prayer with confidence because we know that number nine, God is gracious. He's gracious. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In the psalmist Old Testament context, that was the nation of Israel, right? God's chosen people. But today, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, it's us. It's the church. Right? The apostle Peter writes of Christian believers today that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And so the psalmist says, you are blessed if you are chosen. And a thousand years later, Paul would write, we have obtained an inheritance, a blessing in Christ, having been predestined, having been chosen. We know Ephesians 2 this blessing of being chosen. Ephesians 2 was not by works, lest anyone should boast. Rather, it is the free gift of God. It is by grace that we've been saved through faith. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 9, our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God alone who has mercy. God gets all the glory in rescuing sinners like us because we bring absolutely nothing of our own righteousness to the table. No human will or exertion. We come with empty hands to God or we don't come at all. It all depends on God's gracious choosing. God's sovereign election is grace. It is praiseworthy. Praise God it's not dependent on anything in you or me. Number 10, God is omniscient. It's, uh, he is omniscient. Verses 13 through 15, the Lord looks down from heaven on all the inhabitants of the earth. He observes all their deeds. 
and just let that sink in for a minute, okay? All your deeds, you don't have to wait until you stand before the judgment seat to watch that video with God. All your deeds, God sees them all. That should inspire a healthy fear in all in us. Let that sink in. And yet, in spite of that, of knowing his knowing the deepest, darkest recesses of our souls, the parts of us we don't show anyone else, his love for you remains unchanged. Verse 5, the earth is still full of his steadfast love for you, for me. How amazing. And this all culminates. God's goodness climaxes in trait number 11. God is Savior. The Lord is Savior. Verses 16 through 17 say, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue Kings put their hope in their armies. Warriors put their hope in their strength. The wealthy put their hope in their wallets. The intelligent put their hope in their minds. The self-righteous put their hope in their morality. Marxists put their hope in revolution. Capitalists put their hope in the free market. Democrats put their hope in Biden. And Republicans put their hope in Trump. And every single one of them is false hope. It will let you down. It has no power to rescue you. So David says, verse 18, My eye is on the Lord. My hope is in His steadfast love. He alone can save. And praise God, friends, He has. Jesus saves. And when you realize that, what he's done for you, the natural response, the necessary response, the only possible response is true, genuine, deep, heartfelt worship. And I know I don't have a lot of time left to spend on all eight of these defining characteristics of genuine worship. But let me at least try and fill in some blanks for you here at the end to try and give you some personal application to chew on as you leave this morning. Number one, because the Lord is good, we respond with joy. With joy. Verse one, shout for joy in the Lord. Verse 21, our heart is glad in Him. Joy, it's a fruit of the Spirit, guys. Like That, that doesn't mean that Christians are going to be happy all the time. But it does mean that if you're never happy, you're probably not a Christian. Because we, of all people, are are the most joyful people on the planet. Why wouldn't we be? Our sins have been forgiven. We're adopted heirs of the Most High God. We get to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. And if that does not make you want to shout for joy from time to time, then you need to do some soul searching this morning. You really do. Let me ask you, when was the last time you shouted for joy? Was it when your husband proposed to you? When your daughter told you she was pregnant? When Guns N' Roses announced the reunion tour? When the Blues won the Stanley Cup last year? When the Cardinals won back in 2011? When Freeze hit that walk-off homer in game six? 
Anybody in the stadium that night? Anybody lucky enough to get tickets? Yeah. That's what Sunday mornings here at church should sound like. That stadium. When God's people get together to collectively remember what He's done for us, saving us from an eternity of just punishment, adopting us into His perfect heavenly family, come on, we're talking about a stupid baseball game and some of y'all lose your daggum minds. And if I can't get a single amen out of you this morning, something is wrong, church. Paul exhorts us in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Listen, if God's goodness does not compel you to respond vocally and voluminously in worship, with shouts of joy, with songs of praise, then one of three things is happening. Either, number one, you are quenching the Spirit. Right? Like, the Spirit is moving inside you because you know what God's done for you, but for some inexplicable reason, you are trying your hardest not to shout amen, to keep it you know, pushed down there, not to break out in song with the rest of us during worship. Right? I mean, David danced naked in the streets. I mean, y'all, y'all can keep your clothes on, but, but some of y'all need to let Psalm 33 this morning be your spiritual ex-lax. You are backed up, and you need to just get freed up and let your, your spiritual constipation get taken care of and just let the praises flow. Number two, you're, you're either quenching the spirit, or number two, you're not engaged spiritually because there's some mental or emotional or even physical obstacle to that. Some of y'all are so physically tired when you come on Sundays. I can see you up here, by the way, right? I know who's dozing off. Listen, if you worked the graveyard shift at the hospital last night and you came straight here because you love corporate worship so much, you so value worshiping God with his people on Sundays, God love you. We are glad you're here. I am praying for you this morning and every Sunday that you will be able to stay awake, that God will give you the strength. But for the rest of you, you need to go to bed earlier on Saturdays so that you can get up and prepare your hearts and prepare your minds to worship the Lord on Sundays. This is the most important hour of your week. Do you realize that? Are you present here? Mind, body, spirit, all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, in worship for the Lord. He deserves it, church. He deserves it. Our undivided attention in worship. Some of you find it hard to respond in worship because of something going on outside in your personal life. You're still grieving a significant loss. You are battling anxiety or depression this morning. We're glad you're here too. We pray for you too. And specifically, my prayer this morning for you is that as you fix your eyes on the Lord, that everything else in your life might get put in its proper perspective. And you might even be able to say with David in Psalm 34, I will praise the Lord no matter what at all times, he says. Because the only other explanation, the the third alternative, if you're not quenching the Spirit, and there's not some mental, emotional, physical barrier to your worship, is that maybe you're honestly not really that excited because you're not really that saved. Like, unbelievers, unsaved people don't get excited about who God is. They don't get excited about what God has done in His death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. 
I, I don't know for sure, but I'd be willing to guess that my father's cardiac surgeon who performed his emergency quadruple bypass surgery when my dad had a heart attack during a routine stress test 10 years ago, I'm guessing his surgeon is on my dad's Christmas card list now. And I'm guessing that every year when my dad sits down to write that note, he gets a little choked up. Realizing that this man literally saved his life. Let me ask you this morning, friends. When was the last time you got choked up reflecting on the reality of the lyrics that you were singing to the Lord during worship? When was the last time you got choked up reflecting on the reality of the gospel you were symbolically partaking of during communion? The reality of the gospel that I am preaching up here every Sunday morning. The reality of the gospel you're reading every day, I hope, in your daily devotionals with the Lord. Do you ever get choked up? Like I'm not talking about emotional manipulation. I'm not saying the goal of worship is to try and make you feel a certain way. The goal of worship isn't you at all. It's Him. And, and if we would just get out of our own ways, our navel-gazing for just a moment, and allow ourselves to experience God as He really is, to encounter His gospel for the life-transforming good news that it really is, it will change you. It will it will move you to worship. You will respond, number two, with praise. With praise. Verse one says, praise befits the upright. Now I'm running short on time. Let me just list for you some of our remaining six responses of worship here. Number three, we respond with thanks. Verse two says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. My daughter Ellery was very confused by this one. She said, no, Daddy, it's bad to be a liar. I said, this is a different kind of liar, baby. It's good. It's good. It's, it's like a harp they used to use to praise God. So then she said, well, will you buy me one then? That should be our response, right? More instruments to praise God. Number four, we respond with song. Verses two and three, make melody. Sing to him a new song. Every contemporary Christian musician's favorite verse in the Bible, right? That's good job security. It's a command in God's word to, 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 to sing a new song, so they better keep churning them out. We better keep buying the CDs. And playing skillfully too, verse 3, don't be offended if you try out for our church worship team and Scott cuts you. He's just being biblical, all right? It says play skillfully. We're all called to raise a shout of praise. We're just not all called to do it in front of a microphone. Right. Amen. All right, number five, uh, we respond with fear. Verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. This is not fear like, oh no, God's so holy. I I'm so sinful. What's he going to do to me? Romans 8 makes it clear there is now there. For now, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4, God's perfect love has cast out that kind of fear of condemnation. Instead, this is a healthy awe and respect and reverence for the Lord. We do not approach the throne of the Almighty God of the universe casually. Hebrews 12, 28 exhorts us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
You prepare your hearts before you come on Sundays. Number six, we respond with hope. Verse 18, hope in his steadfast love. Verse 22, we hope in you. That's what this whole series has been about, psalms of hope. Deepening your hope in the Lord through the psalms. And and hoping in the Lord is really just another way of saying, number seven, that we trust in him. We trust him. Verse 20, our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Verse 21, we trust in his holy name. James Johnston explains the point of worshiping God with energy and joy is not just to feel good or to have an experience. The end result of true worship is stronger faith. If you worship in spirit and truth on Sunday, you are strengthening your heart to trust in God in the coming week. And finally, number eight, we respond in prayer. Verse 22. Let your steadfast love, this is what verse 22 is, it's a prayer, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. It's a prayer. Friends, may that be our prayer this morning, that God's steadfast love made most manifest in his sending his own son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. May that love be upon us now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.